be in Luke chapter 17 this morning, Luke chapter 17. As you're turning there, I just want to add my word of welcome to you. Thank you so much for coming to be with us here today at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, thanks so much for, for coming out here and being part of our service today. Um, hopefully you received a bulletin, a connect card on your way. And if you didn't just see me on the way out, we'd love to just get a record of your visit, just have you tell us a little bit about yourselves uh, so we can just get to know you guys a little bit. And um, love for you to be able to just participate in events we have going on down the road. As Ryan mentioned, man, we got an exciting fall planned. We kind of take the foot off the gas in the summertime. There's a lot traveling and that kind of thing, but really looking forward to the fall. And I just want to add just uh, to what he said, this family conference coming up in September, I want to just encourage our whole church family to come. You'd be like, well, kids are grown. They're out of the house. But man, come on out and, and learn at that family conference because you have the opportunity to be a mentor to, to younger families. And what an opportunity to be equipped to be able to be a mentor to younger families. Or you're like, hey, I don't have kids yet or any of that kind of thing. Well, come and get, listen, on-the-job training is kind of hard, right? Like, so much better to get equipped on the front end of things. So uh, if you want to be part of that family conference, go to our website. There's registration there. We need an idea of how many are coming and planning for child care, uh, that sort of thing. Um, all right, Luke chapter 17 in, in our Bibles. Luke chapter 17. History is full of people who have attempted to predict and prophesy about the end of the world. Um, I know as crazy it is today, people are still doing it, right? Like on the internet, there's people predicting the end of the world and, and how it's going to happen. And uh, if, if, in my lifetime, I have survived the end of the world several different times. There was Y2K, that was supposed to be the end of the world, nothing happened. Then there was, how many of y'all remember Harold Camping? I was on the radio, 2011, it was like May 31st, the world's going to come to an end. And, you know, it came and it went, he like changed his dates and still didn't happen, we're all still here. Uh, then there was the good old uh, Mayan calendar, where like, I guess somebody ran out of space on their calendar. Everybody freaked out, they're like, oh no, end of the world, like we're all going to die. Um, those of you who are older, you, you lived through the Cold War, right? And the Cold War, at, at, at just an instant, the world could have kind of come to an end if Russia and the United States launched all their nuclear arsenals at each other. Like, it would have been the end of civilization. But, you know, one of the most bizarre predictions of the end of the world came in 1806. didn't even come from a person. It came from a chicken, right? How many of you have chickens that, that make prophecies? You don't, okay? But this chicken was known as the prophet hen of Leeds because it was in the town of Leeds, England. And incredibly, this chicken laid eggs with a special message that said, Christ is coming. Now, you can imagine quite the stir that this created in the, in the town of Leeds in England in 1806. Men, eggs are coming out of a chicken, and they're saying, Christ is coming. People were freaking out, right? They, they, they were, you know, get, let's get right with God. We, there was panic, but this special message, of course, proved to be too, too good to be true. The eggs, it turned out, weren't actually embryonic predictions. But that was in, it was, in fact, a giant hoax carried out by an infamous con artist by the name of Mary Bateman. She would write the message on the eggs and then for the, the poor chicken, put them back in the chicken, and then these eggs are laid. With this message, well, that's an elaborate hoax. By the way, just so you know the end of the story, she was eventually exposed as a fraud and later hanged as a murderer. She poisoned somebody to death trying to get rid of a spell that they had. Bizarre, right? People do some pretty bizarre stuff about trying to predict the end of the world. I guarantee you if I wanted to get a big social media following and have lots of people tuning into our services, I could get up here this morning and make some 
bizarre, wacky prediction about the future and say that the, the Spirit of God told me. And then when it doesn't happen, just change it. And people will keep on listening. I don't, I don't get that. But anyway, the, 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 the first century world, the world in which Jesus Christ entered, much like our world, was a world that was abuzz with sort of messianic expectations and end times hopes. The Jews of Jesus' day were eagerly awaiting the arrival of the Messiah, and they expected him to, to show up at any moment and expel the Romans and fulfill all the promises God had made in the Old Testament. They were awaiting the soon advent of the kingdom of God, and it is the topic of the kingdom of God that furnishes the topic for our conversation today. So we're in Luke chapter 17. By the way, we're doing a study through Luke's gospel, and we're trying to keep things in context. If you want to catch some of the sermons that you maybe have missed or get up to speed, they're, they're all on our website. Luke 17, beginning in verse 20. And when he was demanded by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, neither shall they say Lo here or, or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or, or, or see there. Go not after them, do not follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven and shineth under the other part under heaven, so shall the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they did drink, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed, the second coming. In that day, he which shall be on the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. Grinding wheat is the idea. The one shall be taken, and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, there will the eagles or the vultures be gathered together. Jesus is calling us in this passage to be ready for the kingdom. He's the king, and one day he is going to come back to this world. That's what we sang about this morning, right? All the hymns touched on, in some way, the, the promise of the return of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. It's, it's predicted in every book of the New Testament, right? Jesus himself predicted that he would return. And even when he ascended in, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles are staring up into heaven, watching him ascend. And the angel comes and says, hey, guys, this same Jesus will come back the same way that you've seen him go. He's going to come back physically. He's going to return to this earth one day. Brian read earlier in the, in the service, Revelation 19, this description of Jesus coming, pictured on a white horse, coming as a conqueror, right? He's going to conquer. He's going to rule. He's going to reign forever and ever. So how do we prepare ourselves for the coming kingdom? We take God at his word. We believe that what the Bible says is true. Jesus is going to come back. But how do we prepare ourselves? How can we be ready? We're not going to be ready by writing little messages on eggs, right? We're not going to be ready by, like, looking at the Bible and trying to find little hidden things in the white space between words. 
Readiness is not about trying to predict the future. Readiness is about preparing our own hearts. Let's walk through this text and see what readiness is going to look like. Being ready for the kingdom, first off, means this. We must embrace the kingdom's present inauguration. I know that's a mouthful, but I want to unpack that. It means we must embrace the kingdom's present inauguration. The mistake we can make when we begin to think about the kingdom of God is we can think it's just something that's, that's way off in the future, right? Jesus is going to come back, then the kingdom, but there's no, there's nothing. He's not king now. No. Well, look at verses 20 and 21. The Pharisees show up, and by the way, Pharisees in Luke's gospel have been nothing but hostile to Jesus. So I think we're probably right in, in hearing maybe a trick question. And they're asking, when is the kingdom going to come? When's the kingdom going to come? Now, there's a lot loaded in that question. Uh, then, like now, questions about the end times are loaded, right? If you want to, like, cause a, you know, a, a real debate, ask Christians, when's the rapture going to happen? And what about the mark of the beast? And everybody's got all these different views. Same in Jesus' day. Like most of the Jews in Jesus' day, when they say kingdom, they basically mean a restoration of the Davidic kingdom. They're looking in the Old Testament. We've got David and we've got Solomon and they're ruling over Israel. There's this, the prominence for the people of Israel. And they're saying, look, we've got all these promises in the Old Testament about a coming king who's going to deliver Israel. They're thinking in very political, very physical, very military kinds of terms. And what's more, they're expecting an immediate fulfillment of the kingdom. If Jesus is the Messiah, he's going to declare himself as king, and he's going to lead the people in expelling the Romans. This, by the way, this expectation grows to a fever pitch. When we get over to to Luke chapter 19, just over a couple of pages to the right, verse 11, he's right at the gates of Jerusalem. And when they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So the people of Jesus' day are expecting him to say, I'm king, let's take out the Romans, reestablish the theocracy. They're thinking of very much here and now political manifestation of the kingdom. So Jesus goes, smash the Romans, give us our independence back and make us great again. That's what they are looking for. So back to our text, Luke 17, verse 20. Notice how Jesus responds. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You're like, well, it comes not with observation. What, what, what does that mean? Jesus basically is saying, you're asking the wrong question. Your idea of the kingdom is completely wrong. You have limited it to just a physical, political, military reality. So the kingdom is not that kind of kingdom. It doesn't come with a bunch of signs that you can observe. Then as now the the, the Jewish rabbis were trying to interpret signs and set dates and it will be on Passover and and all these different things. And Jesus is like, it's not going to, the kingdom's not going to come with signs of observation. It's not going to show up in such a way as can be observed. He goes on to say in verse 21, neither shall I say, lo here or lo there. It's not, it's not about a particular place. It's not, oh, here's the kingdom and it's in this locality and it's in Jerusalem. It's not about a piece of real estate. Now, one, that's one mistake we can make about thinking about the kingdom is thinking kingdom means a realm. There's borders. There's a piece of dirt. Jesus very emphatically says it's not about a here or a there. It's not about a place. The idea of kingdom can be more of a dynamic idea. The idea not so much of a realm, but the idea of a rule. So think of the idea of the crown of England. We're not, when we use that word, we're not really referring to like the actual physical object. We're referring to the authority that belongs to royalty. 
When the New Testament uses the word kingdom, it is referring not to just a realm, like well, it was just Israel or just this place. It's referring to the dynamic rule of God over human history. That's what Jesus is driving at. It's not about here or there. And then he says this, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It's present. It is here right now. Now, that phrase within you, I think, could probably be more helpfully rendered. It is among you. Listen, he's talking to the Pharisees. Pharisees hate Jesus. I don't think Jesus is saying, Pharisees, that God is ruling in your hearts and lives. No, they're in rebellion against God. What he is saying, hey, guys, the kingdom is in your midst. Can you picture the Pharisees standing in a sort of a circle asking this question? And here's Jesus standing in the middle of the circle. And he's saying, the kingdom, the rule of God, it's right here. In other words, what he's saying, the kingdom is not about a place. It is about a person. It is about a king. It is about the presence of King Jesus. So the kingdom is here. The kingdom is right now. Which raises kind of a challenge for us. We pray, thy kingdom come. And Jesus is going to talk about the rest of this chapter, about this this future dimension. So we're like, is the kingdom a a future thing that we're looking forward to? Or is it a, a present thing? And the answer is yes. In the presence, in the person of Jesus, the kingdom, here's the word we want to use, is inaugurated. It is started. The kingdom is inaugurated. So Jesus is the king. He is the descendant of David. He is the one who embodies the authority and the rule of God. And he shows up into this world and he says, I'm the king. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. I am the king. The kingdom is here. It is a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that you enter not by physical birth, but by a new birth. You must be born again or you will not see what? The kingdom of God. The Jews had the idea completely wrong. They figured, well, the kingdom is just this restoration of a Jewish theocracy. We're part of it just by our bloodlines. Jesus is like, no, this kingdom, it's about the rule of God in this world and particularly his rule over those who have repented and have received him. So he says, the kingdom now or then? Well, in one sense, the kingdom is now. Jesus has come. He has declared, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He has died. He has been buried. He has risen again. He has ascended. And even now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven on the throne of David. And he is ruling over his church. Now, the church is not the kingdom, right? The kingdom is bigger than that. But we can think of ourselves as kind of a, an outpost of the kingdom. We can think of ourselves as kind of like an embassy in, in enemy territory, right? So you go to a foreign country and there's a United States embassy. It's like a little bit of United States soil in in another country. I remember as a kid when we lived in New Zealand, going to the embassy, the U.S. embassy one time with my mom, and she says, we're going to go to Little America. That's how she thought of it. This is America. We're ah, the Marines and and all that stuff. The, The church of Jesus Christ, an outpost of the kingdom. That's the idea, the authority of Jesus, the rule of God in the person of Jesus. You don't believe me, in Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus had told the Pharisees, he said, listen, if I'm casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom has been inaugurated. Jesus is king now. So one level, we can talk about the kingdom advancing. We can talk about Jesus ruling and reigning right now. So what should our response be? I'm saying the first way that we prepare for the coming kingdom is to embrace the present inauguration of the kingdom, which means this. Jesus is the king. You know what we should do if he's the king? We bow before him. We swear fealty and loyalty to him. We submit to his kingship and to his lordship, and we own him and we worship him as king. If we believe that the kingdom 
is now, in a sense, that has been inaugurated by the coming of Jesus and by his resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, our response is to repent and believe the gospel. Here's our problem. We want to be king. That's the problem all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? God's like, don't eat of this tree. And man's like, I got a better idea. I want to do my own thing. I want to be as God. I want to be my own king. And all of us have our own little kingdoms that we rule over, our our own lives. We want to do our own thing. We want to call the shots ourselves. We want to make the laws ourselves. To enter the kingdom of Christ, we've got to let go of all of that. That's what repentance means, is saying, I am not going to rule over myself anymore. King Jesus rules in my life. And that is what it means to be a Christian. You're not a Christian simply because you were raised in a Christian home or simply because you, quote, unquote, invited Jesus into your heart. Listen, he's king. He doesn't need an invitation. You're a Christian if you have submitted to the reign of Jesus. You've turned away from self-rule and you have embraced his rule, his reign, his authority in your life. We've got to lay down our arms, surrender to his kingship. So the kingdom, this already aspect of the kingdom But now what Jesus is going to start talking about in verse 22 is what we can call the not yet aspect of his kingdom. Yeah, it's inaugurated. It's started. He's ruling and reigning now. But hey, look around at this world around us. Uh, If you want to tell me that, yeah, this is all, this is is the full reign of Jesus. So I'm like, I I think it's going to be a little better than this. Uh, My reading of the Old Testament tells me there's a bunch of promises that God has made to Israel that haven't been fulfilled yet. And I think we're kind of cheapening them by saying, well, yeah, they're all just sort of fulfilled in our, uh, spiritually. Like, no, there, there, is, there is more that God has that has not yet been fulfilled. So this brings us to a second way that we prepare ourselves for the coming kingdom is this, is to anticipate the kingdom's future fulfillment. So we embrace the present inauguration. Jesus is king. He rules in my life. But we anticipate the kingdom's future fulfillment. Notice verse 22 changes audiences. He answers the Pharisees' question, being like, you're asking the wrong question, guys. The kingdom, it's got a spiritual dimension. You enter it through repentance. But now, verse 22, he says to the disciples, the days will come when you'll desire to see just one, just the first days of the Son of Man, and you won't see them. People will say, go to all these places, and it's going to be like lightning shining out of heaven. He's talking about something very different. Notice how the tent switches from the kingdom of God is right now among you, verse 21, to the days will come, future tense, when you will desire. The orientation switches from present to future. So what about this future fulfillment of the kingdom? Jesus is going to come back one day. That's the point of what he's driving at in verses 22 to 25. He is going to return. But just to clarify some misconceptions, he first off tells us it's not going to be immediate. Verse 22, the days will come when you will long, you'll desire to see just the first day of the Son of Man. You won't see it. He's telling the disciples, the 12 around them, it's going to be down the road. It's not going to be immediate. This is not going to be a, hey, next week, you know, or, or go to the cross and then king. No, it's going to be down the road. Now, I don't like to use the word delay because it sounds like God being like, ah, oh, man, I got to delay. Like, there are no delays or changes in plans from God. But from our perspective, we are waiting still for the fulfillment, the future fulfillment, the, uh, the, the, the wrapping up of all of God's plans. Yes, Jesus rules right now over his people through his word. And yes, the kingdom has been inaugurated. And yes, we say repent for the kingdom is here. Jesus is king. But we're waiting for him to return and to fulfill that, 
that rule. He says, so you're going to long for, you're going to desire just one of those days of the Son of Man. Now, you could read that and say, you're going to miss my being here physically. But I think what he's talking about by the days of the Son of Man is the, the future, right? His return. By the way, the phrase Son of Man, yes, it's a way Jesus refers to himself to say, I'm human. But jot this reference down in your notes. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. That phrase, Son of Man, in Daniel's vision, he pictures this Son of Man who goes to the Ancient of Days, and he receives a kingdom that never fades away. It's a reference to the one who's going to rule over the eternal kingdom of God. So by using that phrase, he's identifying with that figure, that one who rules and reigns. So he says, verse 22, it's not going to happen immediately. And that's where we are, beloved. We are between the already, the kingdom is inaugurated, and the not yet. It's not yet fulfilled. We're living between those two, where, yes, Jesus does reign, and we have the promises of God. But guess what? We still struggle with death. We still struggle with sickness. We still face the realities of a broken and fallen world. We still grapple with, you know, in the last couple of years, this this horrible pandemic and and all of the heartache that we have in this world, and we see brokenness all around us. And we're like, yes, this world is broken. This world is not the way that it is meant to be. And we do recognize evil does run rampant. We do realize that the solutions that man puts forward are so inadequate to the scope of the problem. And thinking, like, politics can fix this? Like, there's no way. It's a spiritual problem. The only thing that's going to fix this world is Jesus coming back and reigning. And so our hearts say, how long, O Lord, holy and true? You go through suffering and you're like, how can a good God, if he's good and if he's all-powerful, like, how do we put these things together? And, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a nice little tweetable answer to that question. But it does give us this hope with the question, how long, to say, it will not always be that way. Jesus will come back, but it's not going to be immediate. We're living between the already kingdom inaugurated and the not yet the kingdom fulfilled. So what do we do? I think we should long for it. We shouldn't as Christians just be like, well, I, I shouldn't think about that. I just need to be so. We should long for the, the, the coming of Jesus Christ. We should say how long. We should set our hope on, O oh Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, as we just sang. We should look for that. We should love the appearing of Jesus and every day wake up, out of, wake up from bed and our feet hit the floor and we should think maybe it could be today. That's our hope. It's not going to be immediate. But verses 23 and 24 make the point that this fulfillment is not going to be secret. It says, when they shall say to you, see here or see there, don't go after them. Don't follow them. So people are going to be like, oh, Jesus has come back. The Messiah's returned, but he's, you know, he's hiding out in an apartment, living in Jerusalem. Like, we know where he's at. Like, come, we'll show, show you to him. People have pulled those kinds of stunts, claiming to be the Messiah. You hear about it from time to time. You get these Messiah-type figures, you know, infamously Jim Jones, taking all those people to wherever that was in South America, like David Koresh. We get these, you know, would-be messianic figures who are claiming and it's secret, and you need inside knowledge, and people to point the way to you. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't buy into that deception. Listen, if somebody's on, you know, TBN, and they've broken out this really convoluted prophecy chart that with all these arrows and things, and they're like, and we've pinpointed the day, and it's over here, and you need to buy my book, shut it off, right? Like, they're, they're lying to you. Right? God did not give us the Bible so we could put together an elaborate chart, right? He didn't give us the Bible to where we could pinpoint what's going to happen down the road. He told us he's coming back to give us hope and to give us confidence. 
Not to make us feel like I have inside knowledge that other people don't have. I have a corner on truth. Like, no, 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 no. Verse 24, it's going to be like lightning that goes from horizon to horizon. Now, I've seen some lightning storms. I've never seen lightning go from one horizon to the other. This is to say lightning that circumnavigates the entire planet, that everybody on the planet is going to know that Jesus came back. You're not going to need some prophecy guru to be like, hey, it's over here, and we need to read the tea leaves over there. Or in Jesus' day, you know, the Romans, they would you know, cut open livers to try to... It's not going to be that way. You're going to know about it. When Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a secret event. It's not going to be a private event. It's not going to be an invitation-only type of thing that only a few select will be aware of. It says everybody's going to know about it. So the kingdom's fulfillment is not going to be immediate, but it's not going to be secret either. It's going to be public, and it is going to be glorious. He says, so shall the Son of Man be in his day. Lightning around the world. You don't need somebody on YouTube. He's got a little channel who's like, oh, you don't need to go to church. Like, just watch my... You're not going to need that. Unless we get too triumphalist in our mentality, like, yeah, Jesus is coming back. He reminds us in verse 25, it's not going to be painless. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. This goes right to the crux of what the disciples did not understand. They got son of man imagery, Daniel chapter 7, this one who's going to rule and reign. Messiah, like we believe that. This idea of suffering and being rejected, that didn't fit their scheme You see, there's also another image of the Messiah in the Old Testament, the suffering servant of Isaiah. This one who's going to be rejected, who's going to be hated, who's going to bear away the sins of his people, who's going to be crushed by Yahweh. And Jesus is saying, that's also me. Put those two images together, the son of man who's going to reign and the suffering servant who's going to die for his people. These both are going to happen, and guess what? Look at the order. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected this generation. He says, guys, the cross must come first. There's some people who teach that Jesus and his coming sort of offered all of the kingdom to Israel, being like, if you receive me, millennium kingdom now without the cross. Like, no, 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 The, the cross was not like a plan B when Israel rejected him. The cross was plan A from eternity past. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He must suffer. Not just, I've got to do this, but this is the plan of God that must be fulfilled. Sin must be paid for. Salvation must be purchased. Sinners must be redeemed. Jesus had to be rejected. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to satisfy God's wrath against your sin and against mine so we could be forgiven and be given new hearts and made citizens of his kingdom. But here's what we draw out from this. Notice that word first. Suffering comes before glory. So yes, the kingdom's going to come and we're going to reign with Jesus. But don't be surprised when we have to walk through suffering now. Don't be surprised when we, like Jesus, are also going to be rejected and go through hardship now. Some people will have this overly realized eschatology. Here's what I mean, where they're like, we get all the good stuff God has promised here and now in our lives, and it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And, man, if you, you, know, you give money to my ministry, God will give you all of this money, and you, have, you won't be sick, and everything will be great. You have great life, the, the Joel Osteen message. That does not fit with the, the message of the New Testament. Suffering comes, and then glory. Hardship comes, and then victory. The cross comes, and then the crown. It's modeled in the life of Jesus, and it's also modeled in the life of those who would follow him. We walk in the same footsteps of Jesus, going through suffering now and then glory. But, beloved, it is the promise and the guarantee of glory then that helps us be faithful in the suffering now. 
you're maybe you're in the middle of suffering. You're walking through. You're like, man, this is the, the hardest thing I've ever gone through, and this is painful. Keep your eyes on the promise of future glory. The promises of God are the fuel to give us endurance today. We take one day and one hour and one moment at a time in light of eternity, in light of eternity, in light of the end of the story. That, by the way, is why the book of Revelation was given. The book of Revelation was not written to, like, tickle our fancy, to, to, to satisfy our curiosity. It was written to a bunch of Christians who were getting ground into the dirt by the, the power of Rome. They're at the brink of extinction. John, literally on the island of Patmos, on a little hunk of rock in the Aegean Sea, He'd been boiled in oil. They had tried to kill him. They, couldn't, they just banished him to this rock. Everything looks horrible. And God gives us revelation to say, guys, I win in the end. Be faithful to the end. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still keeping our eyes on that same promise. So how do we prepare for the, 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 the coming kingdom? Well, we embrace the kingdom that is now, the rule and the reign of Jesus in, in our lives, in our hearts, in his church. Secondly, we, we anticipate the future fulfillment Puts all these things into perspective. But third, we need to be ready for the kingdom's sudden intrusion. Sudden intrusion. So verses 26 to 30 give, give us this sudden, sudden intrusion. He says it's going to be like the days of Noah and it's going to be like the days of Lot. And he says here's how it's going to be similar. They did not see what hit them. That, that's, that's the point of comparison that he's making. Everybody in Noah's day, they went about doing all the stuff they would normally do. Noah goes into the ark and then boom, the rain comes. Boom, the flood comes. The, the, the fountains of the deep, all those subterranean, enormous amounts of water come bursting out. And the flood took them all away, obliterated the entire, entirety of the planet's population, except for Noah and his family. Same thing with Lot. So everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah was having a great time. They were living their lives, doing the thing that they normally did, until the day that the angel sort of drags Lot out of Sodom, and then fire and brimstone came on that very day. What's the point that Jesus is making in these verses? It's not so much that the days of Noah and Lot were evil, though they were. Notice Jesus does not draw attention to the evil. He doesn't say, man, the people in Noah's day, they were bad, bad, bad. They deserved what was coming to them. By the way, there was rampant evil in Noah's day. He doesn't say, look at Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their immorality. No, he says that the point of comparison is... It took them by surprise. And why? Notice what they were doing. Notice the actions that the the individuals were doing in the days of Noah and Lot. Verse 27, they were eating, drinking, marrying. Verse 28, eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. There's nothing wrong with any of those activities. We're all going to go home today and hopefully have lunch, have dinner today. There is nothing simple. It's good. God's given us food. Enjoy it. Like eating, drinking, those are good things. Marrying and getting married, good thing, right? Buying and selling, building and planting, good things. But here was the danger. They were so preoccupied with their daily lives, they gave no thought to their eternal condition. That's the point of these verses in verses 26 down to 29. Judgment came suddenly, and it came surprisingly, and it caught the entire population of Sodom and the entire population of Noah's world by surprise. Yes, they were wicked, but Jesus doesn't focus on their flagrant evil, but on their moral indifference. If you want to say, what what, what were the days of Noah and the days of Lot like? People didn't care. 
It wasn't that they were they knew and they were they just did not care about the things of God. They did not care about the fact that there was judgment that was threatened. By the way, they had warning. They had Noah building an ark for hundreds of years. He's a preacher of righteousness. They had Lot, who obviously was very different and was even attempting to appeal to their consciences. There's the angels who come visit. Abraham was just living kind of over on the, the next hill. But they did not believe the warning of judgment, and the judgment came suddenly, destroyed them all. Do you notice how that phrase got repeated, verse 27? Destroyed them all, and then again in verse 29, destroyed them all. And then verse 30 makes the comparison. Even thus shall it be when the Son of Man is revealed. When Jesus comes back, people will not be caring about spiritual things. They'll only be caring about their daily lives. When Jesus comes back, it is going to bring massive, rampant destruction to this world. 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about fire and the brightness of his coming that will obliterate all of his enemies. Brian read in, in Revelation 19, where they're like, hey, call all the birds because there's going to be a whole lot of carrion to eat because of all the people who are going to be obliterated by the coming of Jesus. This is not like little Sunday school lesson, like Jesus is coming again. We're talking about massive destruction and judgment. The coming of Jesus will unleash the wrath of God on this world. That is what Jesus is saying. And it's going to come so suddenly, there's not going to be a a moment to sort of change tack halfway around. People back then were so focused on their daily lives, they weren't concerned about their eternal state. And people today are so focused on their daily lives that they are not concerned about their eternal state. By the way, this does suggest to us the world is not going to be somehow Christianized before Jesus comes back. The vast majority of people at the return of Jesus won't be expecting it, won't be ready for it. This world lives, beloved, on the precipice of judgment. We're living sort of below the, you know, the big earthen dam that is beginning to show, show signs of cracking that could burst at any moment. And people are like, we don't care. Judgment's coming and people don't care. The citizens of earth are oblivious to the clouds of wrath that are looming on the horizon ready to burst. If we're not careful, we do the exact same thing. We preoccupy our minds with piddly distractions and mind-numbing entertainment, lest thoughts of eternal significance might just come in and, 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 and weigh us down. Now, I'm not suggesting that we forget our daily lives, like eating, drinking, getting married, enjoying the life God has given you. That is his blessing. We should do that. But we've got to be so careful that we keep priorities where they need to be, that daily life, that the things of this world do not become so all-consuming We lose sight of eternity. We can become so focused on the priorities that are right in front of our face that we lose sight of the glorious vista of eternity that is right behind us. So are we living with this readiness for the kingdom? Jesus Christ could come back today. You could step off into eternity today. Are you prepared Are you living with an active readiness of seeking those things that are above and not of the things that are on this earth? The final section of Jesus' discourse here, he calls us to really make some costly decisions, brings us to this fourth step in preparation, this kingdom's coming, embrace the present inauguration, anticipate the future fulfillment. 
be ready for the sudden intrusion of the kingdom because it will be sudden. It will take this world by surprise. But now verse 31, we begin to get some, some applica- application he makes. And here's what, he, here's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to accept the kingdom's costly demands. He says, in that day, he which shall be on the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. He that's in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. So he's, he's sort of riffing on the illustration from Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the story, Sodom, Gomorrah, Lot and his wife, they're fleeing Sodom. Lot's wife, she's not really on board with getting out of town, and she turns back for one last look. And it's more than just a look. It's more than just, I want to see the place. But it's a heart that was still in Sodom. And she has instantaneously turned into a pillar of salt, right? As this testimony of suffering the same fate, the people who she loved more than God. Verse 31 is warning, warning us against valuing our stuff more than our salvation, He's sort of picturing the, the, the coming judgment of you're on the rooftop, okay, Palestine, flat roofs, you're up there just kind of hanging out. You're on the porch would be the way we'd say it today. Judgment begins to come. He says, it's going to come so suddenly you don't have time to go in and get all your belongings and get all your stuff. You've got to get out of there quickly. He's saying the speed is going to come so quickly. The time to make a decision is not then, but is now. So imagine you're on a plane and the plane catches fire. This happens from time to time. The plane is catching fire, and the emergency exits open, and those cool-looking slides pop out. And instead of running for the exit, you go back three rows to get, I need to get my laptop from the, you know, the, the, the luggage compartment above the seat. And, oh, I need to make sure I grab the, the newspaper, the magazine that I was reading. You wouldn't do that, or hopefully you wouldn't do that, because your life is a whole lot more valuable than a laptop, right? You just get out of the plane as quickly as possible. Jesus is saying, The call of the kingdom, right? The kingdom is going to come and intrude into this world violently and destructively and suddenly one day. You need to make a decision now to seek your eternal salvation before it is too late. You say, well, I'll just wait. You know, when I see Jesus coming back, then I'll quickly. You're not going to have time. You're not going to have time to make sort of a foxhole conversion on that day. He says, remember Lot's wife. Don't love your stuff. Don't value your possessions more than your soul. Don't, don't value your, your money, your possessions, your hobbies. Don't regard, and you say, well, I don't, I don't. But you're, let me ask you, how often do your hobbies and your possessions and your stuff keep you from a vibrant relationship with Jesus, keep you from the word of God, keep you from the worship of God? We can say to our blue in the face, oh, I love Jesus. But your schedule, your calendar, your budget, your checkbook show that other things are more important. He says, don't be like Lot's wife where she loved Sodom. So verse 33 really lays it on the line. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Quite a paradox, like save your life, lose it, lose your life, save it. What Jesus is saying, if you want to save your life then, you want eternal life then, you've got to lay it down now. You've got to say, Jesus, my life is yours, and you own me. I am your disciple, and I, I will follow you. I'm going to repent and put all of my trust in you. You lose your life. You relinquish your life to the authority of King Jesus. So if you try to keep it, say, I want to live my life now. I want it for me. He says, you, you will lose it on that day of judgment. So count the cost now. Count the cost now. Too many evangelical Christians, us, too many of us are unreformed materialists. 
just unreformed materialist. You were a materialist before you became a Christian where you measured your worth and value and meaning in life with how much stuff, how many toys you had. You become a Christian, and now you sort of sanctify it a little bit and be like, well, now it's sort of God's in the mix here. But still what I'm after in life is more money, a bigger 401K. This verse is calling us not to just, you know, sprinkle a little bit of Jesus onto our materialism. It's calling us to relinquish materialism and make Christ all in all. The chapter ends with this sobering description of some people being taken, other people being left when Jesus comes back. So it says, okay, two people in, in one bed, two women grinding wheat together. People who are in the same place, who externally are very similar, engaged in the same activities, one is taken by Christ and the other is left in judgment. It's a stunning image. You say, what's this deal with two, two men in one bed? Like, hmm, that doesn't sound right. Remember in the ancient world, there'd be sort of one big community bedroom in your, your, your house, especially if you're a peasant, and everybody is sort of sleeping in the same place. So there's nothing sort of moral or immoral going on here. There's two people who are sleeping in the same place. One's taken, the other one's left. Two women grinding wheat. Normally this would be done in the morning. Women were the ones to do it. One is feeding the grain in. The other is turning the, the hand mill, right? You're grinding wheat with big rocks. So two of them engaged in the same activity, and in an instant, one is snatched away, the other one is left behind. The point here is even though both individuals are in close physical proximity, living under the same roof, doing the same jobs, physically, externally looking the same, one is taken, the other is left. One is rescued and the other is condemned. Now, there's a little bit of debate. Is the one taken, taken in judgment? You know, flood takes people away or are they taken in salvation? Not a huge issue. The, the, the point is still the same. One's judged, the other is saved. But I think in light of the, uh, the imagery of Noah and Lot, Noah was taken away by the ark. Lot was taken away by the angel out of the city. The taken away is the, the snatching up. Uh, what we would describe as the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. When Jesus comes back, he will snatch his people away, will take us up out of the judgment before he obliterates those who don't know him. The point is, at the return of Jesus, he will rescue his people, and he will judge those who don't know him. Very simply, there's only two destinies. There's not one's taken, the other's left, and then there's a group in the middle that they can't decide. In the final estimation, you are facing either God's wrath or God's deliverance on the last day. And by the way, if Jesus tarries, which he's tarried for 2,000 years, and you die, you're facing those same two destinies. Just as it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, so Jesus died one time for the sins of his people. You will die, and you will stand before God, and he's not going to be like, all right, we're going to give you one more shot. The time for deciding is now. The time for deciding to follow Jesus is now. Eternity is at stake. What is comforting from this is that God in his omniscience knows who is his and who is not. That, that is comforting to me. And probably many of these people, the one taken, the other left, maybe they go to church together. He could say there were two people sitting in a pew and one is taken and the other is left. Many who today look the part of the redeemed will be condemned that day and exposed that day as frauds. 
God will in the end divide between the wheat and the tares, the true and the false, and the saved and the lost. And here's what should, should give us pause. There are many who live under the same roof, who work at the same job, who attend the same church, who will go to two different eternal destinies. And if you're a Christian, you say, I, I know that I'm right with God. That should make you really step back and say, do, do I care about the fate of the people with whom I live and work and do business? Do, do, I, do I care? The people that you, C.S. Lewis reminded us, he says, the people that we do business with, the people that we, you know, that we call names on Facebook and whatnot. We didn't have Facebook, but the idea is the same. He says, are not mere mortals. None of the people that we interact with are mere mortals. Everybody you talk to and interact with will one day be either an everlasting terror or will be glorified in the presence of Jesus. Everybody you meet has eternal value. On on that day of judgment, when Jesus comes back, superficial religion is not going to do anything for you. Sentimental notions won't secure you. There's notions, oh, they, you know, we all just sort of sincere. Go to, that's not going to, the question will be verse 33. Did you surrender everything, trust Jesus, put your, put your hope and your confidence in him? Or are you trusting in yourself? The only way to escape that day of judgment is to flee to Jesus now. Why? Because Jesus bore the wrath of God. The wrath that we deserve, the wrath that is going to one day fall on this world and all who don't know Christ, for his people, he paid that fully. If you believe in Jesus, you put your trust in Jesus, you come to him in faith, he bore God's wrath for you fully and you will never, ever, ever face it. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You will go through hardship, yes, but you will never face God's wrath. He may send sickness to you, but he'll never send his wrath upon you. You'll you'll never face his condemnation. The kingdom is going to come. Jesus is going to return. So what do we do with this? Let me just conclude with a couple of points of application. Number one, if you are a Christian, this is our hope. Our hope is is not that we're going to somehow make this world a better place. Our hope is not that we'll somehow preserve freedom for our children and our children's children, though it's a good thing if we do. Our hope is not that democracy or... No, 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 no. Our hope is that King Jesus will one day return and reign. That should mean that we, we shouldn't get too bent out of shape when we see our world going the direction that it's always gone. Right? Christians have always lived in a world that has been ruled by sin and by evil, and it shouldn't, should not destroy our hope and leave us depressed and leave us distraught When we see sin around us, Jesus will one day come back and make all things new. Christians, we should be the most optimistic and hopeful and joyful people because we have the promise of Christ's coming kingdom. Another point of application, in light of eternity, we should evaluate our values. What matters to you? What is important to you? Is it Jesus' stuff? And finally, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this maybe sounds really scary, and it should. Uh, by the way, this is not just like a myth. This is, these are the very words of Jesus. If this is true, if what I'm saying is true, if what Jesus is saying is true, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Are you ready? Are you ready for the coming kingdom?